All right, we ended the last segment talking about royalty, and I guess we'll start this one on the same topic, pathetic though it may be. The Whig magazine noted that Queen Elizabeth II was left in a rage over claims by her grandson, Prince Harry, and his wife, Meghan Markle, that she had given her blessing to naming their daughter Lilibet, which was Elizabeth's childhood nickname. When their daughter was born in California in 2021, Harry and Meghan told the press that the Queen had been supportive of their surprising name choice. But in his book, royal reporter Robert Hardman quotes an aide to Elizabeth as saying the Queen was as angry as I'd ever seen her when she heard that statement. The name was a play on how Elizabeth mispronounced her name as a young princess. The nickname Lilibet was used only by the late Queen's closest friends and family. All right, since we're more or less in the miscellaneous file, let's stay there and note that reportedly the TSA found 6,737 guns at airport security checkpoints last year, which broke 2022's record of 6,500 firearms. It should be noted that almost all of the weapons, 93%, were loaded. The top three airports for gun seizures were Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston. Some months back, we made passing mention of pianist uh, Oscar Levant. I can't remember in what context, but I do like this quote from him, which is that what the world needs is more geniuses with humility. There are so few of us left. And I have to laugh at the takedown that appeared in several sources uh, of the current buzzword, much in vogue in Silicon Valley, starting with the comments of Imad Khan in CNET, who noted that in the consumer electronics show that took place in Las Vegas a week or two ago, well, it was unlike previous conferences. Khan noted that, sure, like every year, the world's largest tech showcase featured a flurry of dazzling gadgets, giant televisions, robots, EVs, and foldable phones. The difference this time was that just about every piece of tech claimed to have some relationship with artificial intelligence. There were AI lamps, AI lawnmowers, AI vacuum cleaners, AI mirrors, AI dog collars, and even AI pillows. He noted that a few years back, refrigerators and toasters were all, quote, smart, unquote. This new wave of AI is, in a sense, rebranding all of that. It's not hard to imagine C-suite executives pounding on boardroom conference tables demanding AI be a cornerstone in future products. You can't blame them, but you have to wonder if all this new tech for tech's sake is counterproductive to AI's actual mission. I don't know about that. We're really scared about AI's actual mission. But writing in BBC.com, James Clayton asked, does one really need an AI toothbrush? There's an AI washing machine that can purportedly detect different types of fabric. A Samsung representative told Clayton, this will learn your clothes. To which he said, huh? The lack of any real definition for AI means that almost any product can try riding the wave of a blistering year of hype even if it uses hardly any actual machine learning. Of course, it's noted that looking past some of this marketing puffery, there were some products that uh, reportedly, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, tell us what creative minds in tech, humans, not AI, are thinking these days. For example, 
an indoor meat smoker by GE that lets you hot smoke brisket, pork ribs, and salmon without going outside, one best in show. And you know, if you think about it, isn't it high time that people who are stuck living in apartments can nevertheless smoke brisket, pork ribs, and salmon in their meat smoker without ever having to go outside? You know, is this a great country or what? And speaking of thinking big, in this case, really big in the world of high tech, we have a wonderful article from the New Yorker from the July 25th issue back in 2022 about the floating world, piece by Evan Osnos, noting how outrageously luxurious super yachts are attracting political scrutiny and buyers in record numbers. And this piece we need to quote from, I think, uh, liberally. Evan Osnos opens by saying, in the Victorian era, it was said the length of a man's boat in feet should match his age in years. To which he added, the Victorians would have had some questions at the 40th annual Palm Beach International Boat Show, which convened last March, that's in March 2020, on Florida's Gold Coast. A typical offering, a 203-foot superyacht named Sea Owl, selling secondhand for $90 million. The owner, Robert Mercer, the hedge fund tycoon and Republican donor, was throwing in furniture and accessories, including several auxiliary boats, a Steinway piano, a variety of frescoes, and a security system that requires fingerprint recognition. For the small, tight-lipped community around the world's biggest yachts, the Palm Beach show has the promising air of spring training. On the cusp of the summer season, it affords brokers and builders and owners or attendants from their family offices a chance to huddle over the latest merchandise and to gather intelligence. Who's getting in? Who's getting out? And most pressingly, who's ogling a bigger boat? Out on the docks, brokers parse the crowd according to a taxonomy of potential. Guests asking for tours face a gauntlet of greeters trained to distinguish super-rich clients from quote, ineligible visitors, end quote. That's the description of Emma Spence, a former greeter at the Palm Beach show. Spence looked for promising clues, the right clothes, the right jewelry, the right pets, as well as for red flags, cameras, ornate business cards, and clothes with pop culture references. For greeters from elsewhere, Palm Beach is a challenging assignment. Unlike in Europe, where money can still produce some visible tells, Hunter Wellesley's a barboard jacket, the habits of wealth offer little that's reliable. One colleague resorted to binoculars to spot a passerby with a $100,000 watch. According to Spence, people judged to have insufficient buying power are quickly marked for dissuasion. And if you hail from the realm of ineligible visitors, you may not be aware that we are living through the greatest boom in the yacht business that has ever existed. According to Bob Dennison, whose firm Dennison Yachting is one of the world's largest brokers, every broker, every builder up and down the docks is having some of the best years they've ever experienced. In 2021, the industry sold a record 887 super yachts worldwide, nearly twice the previous year's total. With more than 1,000 new super yachts on order, shipyards are so backed up that clients unaccustomed to being told no have to be shunted to waiting lists. Peace notes that a deeper reason for this demand is the widening imbalance of wealth in the United States. Since 1990, the U.S.'s supply of billionaires has increased from 66 
to more than 700, even as our median hourly wage has risen about 20%. In that time, the number of truly giant yachts, those longer than 250 feet, has climbed from less than 10 to more than 170. Later in the piece, they note that nobody pretends that a super yacht is a productive place to stash your wealth. In a column that spring, headlined, A Super Yacht is a Terrible Asset, the Financial Times observed that owning a super yacht is like owning a stack of 10 Van Goghs, only you're holding them over your head as you tread water, trying to keep them dry. The piece takes a look back when airplanes became quite the status symbol, noting that Hugh Hefner, a pioneer in the private jet era, decked out a plane he called the Big Bunny, where he entertained Raquel Welch and James Kahn and Elvis Presley. Oil baron Armand Hammer circled the globe in his Boeing 727, paying bribes and recording evidence on microphones hidden in his cufflinks. But once it seemed that every plutocrat had a plane, well, the thrill was gone. In any case, an airplane is just transportation. A big ship is a floating stately residence with a hierarchy written right down into the nomenclature. If it has a crew working aboard, it's a yacht. If it's more than 98 feet, it's a super yacht. After that, definitions are debated, but people generally agree that anything more than 250 feet is a mega yacht. And more than 295 is a giga yacht. The world contains about 5,400 super yachts and about 100 giga yachts. Later in the piece, it's noted that in a candid aside to a French documentarian, the American yachtsman Bill Ducker said, if the rest of the world learns what it's like to live on a yacht like this, they're going to bring back the guillotine. And the truth is, these yachts are registered offshore. They use every loophole that's been put in place for illicit money and tax havens. And they play a role in the battle writ large between autocracy and democracy. The article goes on to explain, according to these people in the know, that these incredibly expensive yachts can nevertheless pay for themselves. If you can bring somebody on board, impress the hell out of them, and cut a billion-dollar deal with them, well, the boat will pay for itself. By the way, according to a law dating back to the Titanic, none of these yachts can have more than 12 passengers, although they can have crews that uh, can number 50 or more. Article cites David Geffen, the former music and film executive. He's retired now, but he hosts friends and potential friends on his 454-foot Rising Sun, which has a double-height cinema, a spa, a salon, and a staff of 57. In 2017, shortly after Barack and Michelle Obama departed the White House, they were photographed on Geffen's boat in French Polynesia, accompanied by Bruce Springsteen, Oprah Winfrey, Tom Hanks, and Rita Wilson. For Geffen, the boat keeps him connected to the upper echelons of power. There are wealthier Americans, but not many of them have a boat so delectable that it can induce both a Democratic president and a working man's crooner to risk the aroma of hypocrisy. Anyway, this piece goes on for 20-some-odd pages, and we're not going to be able to touch on every item that, uh, that appears in it. But I do want to quote where... Osnos points out that I interviewed six American super yacht owners at length and almost all insisted on anonymity or held forth with stupefying blandness. Great family time, one said. Another confessed it's really hard to talk about it without being ridiculed. None needed to be reminded of David Geffen's misadventure during the early weeks of the pandemic when he Instagrammed a photo of his yacht in the Grenadines 
and posted that he was avoiding the virus and hoping everybody is staying safe. It drew thousands of responses, many marked, hashtag eat the rich. Others summoned a range of nautical menaces. At least the pirates have his location now. Anyway, I think I've said it before, and I certainly can say it again, that my feeling is you can live just as well on a super yacht as you can on a giga yacht. Here, here. And speaking of voyaging out on the high seas, I have in my hands an archival piece from um, The Economist. It's titled The World Ahead 2022, so I presume this is something that came about at the very beginning of that year, their traditional uh, issues looking forward. Sadly... Economists look forward in 2022 to note that what is known as illegal, unreported, and unregulated, that's I-U-U, fishing, accounts for 20 to 50% of the global catch, with the proportion probably highest in the once rich waters of the Indo-Pacific. And it's even worse because I-U-U operators are likely to be involved in other crimes like finning sharks or running drugs. Tens of thousands of Southeast Asian and African crews toil under conditions of debt bondage to Taiwanese, Chinese, and other unscrupulous operators of big fleets. The piece notes that in the Pacific, onboard fisheries observers monitoring the catch are routinely murdered. Organized crime's tentacles run deep into the fishing industry, and IUU operators are the new pirates. It notes rather optimistically that Thankfully, 2022 will mark a turning point of sorts. Just before the start of the year, a deal to force countries to end most of the harmful subsidies to their fisheries will be reached at the World Trade Organization. That goal has eluded the global body until now, despite 20 years of negotiations. Well, this was 2022. It's sad to report that this seems like a big hunk of baloney because they've taken a look now and realized that it's gotten much worse since then. In Nature magazine, a new study has appeared, which has revealed that three-quarters of all industrial fishing vessels and a quarter of transport and energy ships, a category that includes oil tankers, cargo ships, passenger ships, and support vessels, have been left out of previous tallies of human activities at sea, an oversight that's described as substantial. The UN had previously calculated the maritime economy represents a value of $1.5 trillion a year. The underestimate suggests current mapping techniques cannot be relied upon for an accurate picture of seafaring practices. Most public mapping is done through the Automatic Identification System, AIS, which relies on ships to broadcast their location, identity, and activities to those on shore. Well, nice idea, but it turns out everybody turns off their transponders. It's noted in The Economist that much of the missing tonnage has its origins in Asia, where the number of untracked vessels exceeds those from all other countries combined. This latest analysis was undertaken by researchers led by Global Fishing Watch, a nonprofit organization that builds maps and uses technology to track activity on the world's oceans. The researchers used satellite data that provided continuous high-resolution images of the busiest 15% of the world's oceans. Then they cross-checked this vast database with 53 billion historical ship locations available through AIS. They then trained neural networks to recognize ships based on their characteristic glare of reflected light and used data such as distance to port, daily speed, and nearby signs of marine life to classify their activity. 
And how bad this really is was outlined very effectively in The New Yorker in the October 16th, 2023 issue that took a, look, took a look at the shadow armada of China. This is a very lengthy article. I highly recommend, uh, dear listener, that you look it up and read it because there's a lot of data here that's kind of mind-blowing. What really blows my mind is the fact that these poor Asians from countries like Indonesia are hired by these unscrupulous fishing vessels, fishing companies, mainly Chinese, which, if the truth be told, are, are, are more than just fishing vessels. It's pointed out that the article points out that China has the largest maritime operation the world has ever seen. In the past few decades, partly in an effort to project its influence abroad, China has dramatically expanded its distant water fishing fleet. And China is largely unresponsive to international laws, and its fleet is the worst perpetrator of illegal fishing in the world, helping drive species to the brink of extinction. Its ships are also rife with labor trafficking, debt bondage, violence, criminal neglect, and death. The human rights abuses on these ships are happening on an industrial and global scale, said Steve Trent, the CEO of the Environmental Justice Foundation. And, and I started to talk about how bad this is and got sidetracked, but how bad this is is that these people that are brought on board are dying of scurvy. They're dying of scurvy and beriberi. Scurvy is something you get if you, you know, don't have any vitamin C in your diet. This was, this was discovered in the 1700s and led to the curing of scurvy by taking limes aboard, which is why we still call Brits limeys, or at least some do. I do. To get beriberi, you have to basically eat nothing but polished rice and therefore, and therefore have no thiamine in your diet. So yes, like the voyages of exploration back in the 1600s, these Chinese and other ships are put to sea for years at a time. And apparently, they don't think to stock the hold with limes or provide thiamine pills or, or, or give them the option of, of non-polished brown rice, which will keep you from getting thiamine. It's unbelievable. And here's, I think, the punchline to this, this horrible situation. The article notes that a large portion of fish consumed in the U.S. is caught or processed by Chinese companies. Several laws exist to prevent the U.S. from importing products tainted by forced labor, including that which is involved in, in the production of conflict diamonds and sweatshop goods. But China is not forthcoming with details about its ships and processing plants. At one point on a Chinese ship, a deckhand showed me stacks of frozen catch in white bags. He explained that they leave the ship names off the bags so they can be easily transferred between vessels. The practice allows seafood companies to hide their ties to ships with criminal histories. On the bridge of another ship, a Chinese captain opened his logbook, which is supposed to document his catch. The first two pages had notations. The rest were blank. No one keeps those, he said. Company officials could reverse engineer the information later. Kenneth Kennedy, a former manager of the Anti-Forced Labor Program at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, said the U.S. government should block seafood imports from China until American companies can demonstrate that their supply chains are free of abuse. And in a way, this kind of means you and me, because you can buy cheap, large volumes of seafood at Costco, Kroger, H Mart, Performance Food Group, and Safeway, which are all cited in the article, and not realize that 
you're basically buying a tainted product. Now, it should be noted, as we've noted this program before, that around the world, fishing stocks have been vastly depleted. What was once the world's largest fishery, that of the cod fishery off the Grand Banks in, in Canada, has been wiped out. And the solution has been to put out more ships and just fish more aggressively, which is exactly what killed the cod. There's a sidebar in the piece I think I should quote. It notes that squid fishing, or jigging, has grown with American appetites. Until the early 70s, Americans consumed squid in tiny amounts, mostly at niche restaurants on the coast. But as overfishing depleted fish stocks, the federal government encouraged fishermen to shift their focus to squid, whose stocks were still robust. In 1974, a business school student named Paul Kalikstein published a master's thesis asserting that Americans would prefer squid if it were breaded and fried. Promoters suggested calling it calamari, the Italian word, which makes it sound more like a gourmet dish. Squid is thought to be a sailor's variant of squirt, a reference to squid ink. By the 90s, chain restaurants across the Midwest were serving squid. Today, Americans eat 100,000 tons a year. And of course, one reason China has to go all over the world to fish is it's depleted its coastal waters rather thoroughly. And now as they go around the world to catch fish and squid, China bolsters its fleet with more than $7 billion a year in subsidies, as well as with logistical support, security, and intelligence support. It sends vessels updates on the size and location of the world's major squid colonies, allowing the ships to coordinate their fishing. The author of the piece named Ian Urbina, said, I watched about 260 ships jigging a patch of sea west of the Galapagos. The Armada suddenly raised anchor and in near simultaneity moved 100 miles to the southeast. Ted Schmidt, the director of Skylight, a maritime monitoring program, told me that this is unusual. Fishing vessels from most other countries wouldn't work together on this scale. Anyway... The good people at the Monterey Bay Aquarium have tried to bend over backwards to educate us and as to what sort of fish we should be eating, uh, the fish that are sustainably harvested, etc. And I think we need to take a very, uh, very closely focused look at this situation because we might just overfish the world here in the not-too-distant future. Although how it is we're going to get the Chinese to stop doing this, I don't know. And, you know, all this reminds me of a discussion I had, uh, well, gosh... Back in the early 1970s, I had a biology class that discussed the tragedy of the commons by Garrett Hardin, a classic article about how it is we tend to overuse resources that don't have specific owners. What really saddens me about reviewing this article, which I have a, a printout, a printout dating from 1965 from the American Association for the Advancement of Science notes that Hardin points out that unless we control the human population of Earth, we are in deep trouble. To quote from one of its final paragraphs, the most important aspect of necessity that we must now recognize is the necessity of abandoning the commons in breeding. No technical solution can rescue us from the misery of overpopulation. Actually, I need to read that one again. No technical solution can rescue us from the misery of overpopulation. I believe that's true, and I believe that people that tell you the opposite are just delusional. 
Said Garrett Hardin, freedom to breed will bring ruin to all. Suffice it to say that the world did not take the advice of Garrett Hardin. When he wrote these words in 1968, the world population was, I'm guessing, somewhere around 3 billion, maybe a little more. Now, it's at 8 billion. And I think I must move away from our, our discussion of doom and gloom. All right, let's close out with something from Uncle John's political briefs, which we quoted from earlier with the Pledge of Allegiance stuff. On page 201, they have an item I cannot resist under the title, Beat the Press. The story is... All right, so finally, I think what I'll do is go to back to Uncle John's uh, Bathroom Reader series for their political briefs, which we quoted from earlier, and cite their article titled, Beat the Press, noting that the story from the 2008 presidential campaign uh, was of interest. It was noted that the Boston Herald published a very odd news story, which was that Vice President Dick Cheney had challenged presidential candidate Hillary Clinton to a hunting contest. According to the Boston Herald, Cheney had issued a challenge during an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press. Then, the story went on, Clinton declined his offer, saying, I fired a gun once, but I didn't like it, and I didn't recoil. A joke referring to her husband's infamous, I smoked marijuana, but I didn't inhale, remark, which is a landmark in American political statements. But wouldn't you know it, the Boston Herald store got picked up by Google News, and then pretty soon everybody had the story. But Uncle John's notes that uh, the editors at the Herald apparently didn't bother to verify whether Dick Cheney had recently appeared on Meet the Press. He had not. Nor did they notice that the writer listed as the original source was named Andy Borowitz, the well-known comedian and satirist. Borowitz had posted the story on his blog as a joke and was as surprised as anybody when he saw it had been picked up by the Herald as a real story. The Herald's publisher, Kevin Convey, admitted, We were bamboozled. I don't think bamboozled is exactly the right word. And wouldn't you know it, uh, the Chinese news agency managed to outdo Andy Borowitz. On September 25th, back in 2008, China's official state-run news website, which was Xinhua.org, posted a story about the much-anticipated launch of the manned Zhenzhou 7 rocket, a mission that would feature China's first-ever spacewalk. The story described the launch in great detail. The firm voice of the controller broke the silence of the whole ship. Now the target is captured 12 seconds ahead of the predicted time. The article concluded, warm clapping and excited cheering breaks the night sky echoing across the silent Pacific Ocean. But it turned out, well, some astute viewers noticed there was one mistake in this. The report was posted two days before the launch actually occurred. When pressed for an explanation, Xinhua.org blamed it on a technical error. I think we'll close here with three quick quotes. One from presidential aspirant Mitt Romney, who said, I believe in an America where millions of Americans believe in an America that's the America millions of Americans believe in. That's the America I love. And one of our perennial favorites from former President Warren G. Harding, I don't really know much about Americanism but it's a damn good word with which to carry an election. (laughs) 
And then there's this showstopper from the Vietnamese foreign minister, Nguyen Co Thach, who said, we are not without accomplishment. We have managed to distribute poverty equally. And that just about does us. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who also has managed to distribute poverty rather equally. Our thanks also to Guy Tortorisi, who's manning the booth at 90.3 FM. Thanks, Guy. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you again real soon.